Well, amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you here. Grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11, if you will. Romans chapter 11. While you're turning there, can we just thank the Lord for our worship team leading us so well? Grateful for them. All right, today we are going to dive into the deep end of the pool. This is a heavy section of scripture, but um, and all of God's word is good. And so I'm excited to uh, journey through this with you today. And it's been a, a great day so far. First two services were, were great. I did share with the last service that I'm really excited today because over, over the last 14, 15 hours, I've been smoking a, a beef brisket at my house. Now I may be eating I may be eating dinner at, at, at McDonald's because I'm not I've not smoked a beef brisket before so it could turn out terrible uh, but I am excited about it but man far more than that as exciting as that is I, I'm really excited to be here with you I, I love gathering together with you and singing uh, praises together uh, worshiping the Lord Jesus He's worthy of it all and I love opening the Word of God alongside of you and just seeing what He has for us my prayer for us today is that He will capture our hearts in a way of which only he can. The, the truth is sometimes we talk about the glory of God and the effectual work of, of Christ on the cross, but often our hearts can be disconnected as we use that language. And my prayer today is that our hearts will connect with uh, the language of what Christ has accomplished on the cross and the, the glory of God as is seen in his word. So if you're willing and able, please stand in honor of reading the word. We're going to look at Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 7. And to bring you up to speed just a little bit here, last week we talked about verses 1 through 6 and how the Lord had left a remnant of Israel. And Paul pointed back to Elijah saying, hey, there's a time you felt like you were alone and you were the only one that was following uh, the Lord's will, but that was just not the case. There were 7,000 that had not bowed to the false gods of Baal. And, and so he, he drew his attention to, to that. And, and, and then Paul parallels that with Israel and says, hey, look, there, there are many who are, are following Jesus. And, and he always leaves a remnant, God does, because he's kind and he's faithful. And so he continues to flesh that out. And we find ourselves in verse seven, where it says this, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, this is not the first time we see that language of being hardened. Earlier in Romans, we, we see Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And it points back to God using him for his good purpose. But we see very clearly that Pharaoh is the one that rejected the Lord. And then God hardens his heart. And now we see a couple of Old Testament quotes here. Verse 8 as it is written. Now he's about to quote a text from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse four. This is Moses speaking to the second generation out of the Exodus. This is 14 years before uh, Paul, 1400 years before Paul. And so we see this prophecy taking place. And so Paul's drawing from this in Deuteronomy and he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And then he transitions to Psalm 69, written about a thousand years before uh, Paul's time. And he quotes David. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. May God bless the reading and proclamation of his word today. You may be seated. 
As you can see, there are a few challenges that are posed in this text, but we want to just face them head on. We want to begin by looking at verse 7. It talks about how Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, yet the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And then we find ourselves into this quote from Deuteronomy. What is meant by this text? What is Paul trying to communicate? Well, there's a couple of things that I want to mention. Number one, I want to say that there is a theological thought out there known as, as double predestination that believes that God elects those not only to salvation, but he predestines those to hell as well. Now that carried out, hear this, that carried out shows in that type of thought that God is the creator of sin. And so God has created sin and he has monergistically or irresistibly coerced people to dive into sin and then to spend an eternity in hell separated from him. Can I just say that we completely reject that type of thought. Here's why. I believe it is a, an assault on the integrity of who God is. Um, God is not the cause of our sin. He is not the one who created sin and then forcing us to engage in that sin. I think that this is even an assault on the way historic Reformed thinkers thought. It's a gross caricature of what that thinking may be. Uh, for those in the theological world, you, you would see this as a hyper form of Calvinism or a hyper form of superlapsarianism. It's just not accurate, nor is it right. And, and it completely uh, misconstrues the attributes of God. So if God is not the one that is casting these people into hell before the foundations of the world, then what is happening. Well, according to the scriptures, we have to begin by measuring our own sinfulness. We have to begin to look at our own heart. Here's what I mean by this. The book of James says that it only takes one sin to ruin our soul forever. But here's what I know about myself, and I also know this to be true about you. Our iniquities are far more than just one sin. To use a few illustrations, our iniquities are as many as the hairs on our head. Now, you may look at me and say, that's not fair. Uh, that, that, that puts you in a light of not being sinful. But let me carry it further to put myself in the same pool. It would be likened to the amount of sand found on a seashore or the amount of droplets that it takes to fill the entirety of an ocean. Point being, our sins are many, and we have gladly taken part in our own depravity, knowing that this is who we are, and we want to engage fully into this sin nature. Now, this begins very, very early. I have three children. I didn't have to teach any of them to sin. Now, I'm cert certain that I have some way, somehow along the way, because I'm a broken person, but I didn't have to teach them how to sin, and they're born that way. They are little sinners, but sometimes we think that as they grow, if they grow into this young adulthood, that now maybe some of that will, will, will fall by the wayside and they won't be as sinful as they were when they were kids, but it only seems to get worse as they get into young adulthood. But then we start thinking, well, if I can just grow up and mature and be an adult, once I'm an adult, I'm going to make wise choices always, and I won't contend with sin anymore. But 
Who has found that to be untrue, right? We, we find ourselves as adults contending with sin. Now, I can't speak for those who are more aged than I, but I can say that I had a gentleman named Mr. Tommy Watson who was in his mid-80s. He spoke at our church a, a while back, many years ago. He was a chaplain for the Miami Dolphins, uh, kind of spent his life in Miami. And he, he told our church, he said, hey, do you want to know? He asked this question, do you want to know at what age you no longer struggle with sin? And everybody's like, yeah, we want, we want to know. And he said, I haven't found out yet. And he's in his mid-80s saying, I still have some struggles that I deal with with my own flesh. Now, we do, we do know that the work of Christ in our life is powerful and it is good. And we know that that sanctification work as a follower of Jesus shows us that we can be overcomers. But the Bible is clear that on this side of heaven, we will struggle with sin. As 1 John says, if you say that you are without sin, you are a liar. So here's the question that comes to mind when I think about the sinfulness of our own lives, the measure of my own sinfulness. I think of how great the ransom of Christ must be. Think about that. And how great is the ransom of Jesus? Though my sins be many, the atonement that Jesus made has covered every single one of them. Think of heaven's courts right now, brothers and sisters. Heaven's courts is filled with liars. It's filled with blasphemers. It's filled with gossips. It's filled with thieves, man. It's filled with persecutors. Heaven's courts are filled with sinners. Why? Because God in his kindness sent his one and only son and all who believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. If you trust in him, your sins can be atoned for. So we see that the measure of this is our own sinfulness. It's not God's causation. We see that it is our own doing. Now, in this particular text, if we journey down to verse 25, which we'll get to in several weeks, we see that it talks about a partial hardening here. Our prayer is that those who have rejected Jesus time and time again, our prayer is that God would open their eyes. Our prayer is that God would open their ears. What we see happening in this text is not a predestination towards hell or a predestination towards sin, meaning that God created it and is coercing you towards it. What we see here is reprobation. We see a group of mankind who has rejected the Lord, rejected the Lord, rejected the Lord, and this reprobation means that God in turn has rejected them. We need to pray that God would open their eyes and open their ears. And this is exactly what Paul is drawing out. He's saying there is a remnant that is following the Lord that understands, but the rest have been hardened because they have rejected and rejected and rejected, and God in his sovereign will has hardened them. Now, as we continue in this text, we see here in verse 9, Paul transition, and he's now quoting David from Psalm 69. This psalm is known as an imprecatory psalm. Here's what that means. That means that it's invoking divine judgment. So we see way back a thousand years before the time of Christ, this imprecatory psalm being given, and now Paul is quoting it. So if you can, will you just flip back to Psalm 69? I want to point out a couple of things we see a direct quote from Psalm 69 here in Romans 11, but there's a few things surrounding it that I want to draw your attention to. So go to Psalm 69, if you will, and once you have found that, just earmark it somehow. 
All right, just whether you have a tag in your Bible that you can place over it or just put your thumb there or, or crinkle the page, whatever you need to do, mark that once you found Psalm 69 and then continue to flip to the left and go to Psalm 22. I'm going to show something to you. Once you're there, just say amen. Oh, man, some of y'all are pretty good at this Bible drill. I actually had to mark my Bible after the nine o'clock service because I didn't have it marked. And as I was journeying through, man, everybody was there waiting on me. And I'm like, man, is the Psalms in my Bible? I just couldn't find it. But anyway, we're here now. So look at Psalm 22, verse one. I wanna, I wanna show something to you. This is written a thousand years before Jesus. Does verse one speak to you in any type of way? Let me, does it remind you of anything? Let, let me read it to you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember this? Yes, you remember this. This was found in the crucifixion. We read of it in Mark 15, where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Flip over, at least in my Bible I flip, but if you may just need to look down to verse 15 and following of Psalm 22. It says this, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Does that sound familiar? I can count all of my bones. Not one bone of our Lord was broken. Does this sound familiar? They stare and they gloat over me. This is when they are mocking him and picking at him, making fun of him for being the king of the Jews. And then we see in verse 18, they divide my garments among them and my in my, for my clothing, they, they cast lots. Does this sound familiar? familiar. Yes, this is a prophecy of Jesus. And we see this as an imprecatory psalm here in Psalm 69, because what is happening is we see that Jesus is being rejected as Messiah. This is prophesied a thousand years before Jesus comes. And there's judgment surrounding that rejection. Flip back over to Psalm 69 that you have saved there. Verses 22 and 23 are what's quoted in Romans 11. But I want to back up and look at 21. 21 says, they gave me poison for food. Does this sound familiar? And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Yes, it does. And the reason it sounds familiar is it's pointing towards the Messiah and surrounding this is the Messiah being rejected. And what follows that rejection is divine justice, which brings me to the second point that I want to make clear in this room. We must seriously consider the divine justice of our Lord. Can I just say the God of the Bible is often not the God of our own imagination? Do you know that oftentimes we try to construct a God in our brains that makes sense to our brains, but oftentimes that is misaligned with what the Bible actually says? We serve a God who is a jealous God. I'll just say it the way I know how to say it from North Florida. We can't play with God. We are not to play with God. He's a jealous God. We must know that his love in no way diminishes his justice, nor does his justice diminish his love. As a matter of fact, there's nothing that diminishes his other attributes. His character is flawless. We see the integrity of God intact. And because he is a God of integrity, man, he is a God of justice, the truth is this, God will get satisfaction for our sin. He will. The Bible is very clear about this. Now, there's two ways 
that that satisfaction will be attained. It'll either be attained by punishing the sinner, meaning that if we refuse to receive Christ and trust in him and rest in him, the sinner will be punished. And the way that happens is for all of eternity. We'll be separated from God in a real place called hell, paying the price of our sins. That's one way. The other way for our sin to be satisfied is through the finished work of Christ. Some will hear this and they'll say, well, this type of God is a cold God. He is a stern God. He is a severe God. But can I tell you, he's the God of the Bible. But the God of the Bible shows us how great the substitutionary work of Jesus truly is, that he would satisfy all of our sins. What takes all of an eternity for us to to somehow satisfy God over, which by the way, never ends. What takes that only takes a moment with Christ on Calvary's cross. See, God in his kindness, he poured his wrath upon his son, right, to take care of all of the sin, past, present, and future that his sons and daughters would get into. This is the work of God, and he has done this. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us, but he's just. We'll either trust in him and respond to him in faith, or we will reject him. Can I tell you, we must not reject him. And as I think about the glory of who God is and I think about the goodness of our God, I can't help but be reminded what our Lord went through. As God has so loved us that he sent his one and only son to Calvary's cross for us, I can't can't imagine what he went through. Think of the physical pain. He would literally sweat drops of blood as he thought about the cross that he was going to, the agony that's wrapped around this. Think of the pool of blood on the ground as he sweat drops of blood looking towards the cross. Not only that, he was mocked. He was scourged. He was scourged so badly that he wore a crimson robe. The robe that was once white is now crimson stained because of the beatings that he endured. He was spit upon. He was spit in his face. His beard was pulled. He was mocked. And as he's mocked and being picked at and as he's beaten and bruised and weak, he's forced to carry the cross to Calvary. And as he's carrying this cross, he's weakened and weakened and weakened to where he cannot physically carry the cross. And someone from the crowd is called to carry the cross and they they drag him to the hill of Calvary. And as he's there, as he's there, they continue the mocking. They continue spitting on him. They continue to poke at him. And as he's there, they lay him on this cross that's been pre-constructed and they put nails in his wrist that we read about way back in Psalm 22. As he nails, as they nail these nails into his hands, as they nail these nails into his feet, which are some of the most sensitive parts of our body, he's enduring that pain, enduring that pain, enduring that pain as he continues to take the assaults from the people. That cross that's been pre-constructed is now hoisted up, and as it's lifted up, there's a pre-made socket in the ground. This is a deep hole for that wood to fall into. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the pain that Jesus endured as he's on this cross, dealing with all that he's already dealt with, and now the cross is being raised up, and it's literally dropped into this socket. Can you imagine the jarring? Yes, the Bible is clear that not one of his bones were broken, but can you imagine the tendons that were pulled, the ligaments that were stretched, the weakness of his own body as he is jarred into this cross. Think of the physical pain that he endured, but far more than the physical pain, think of the spiritual pain that he endured. As the beginning of Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
You see, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he, he being Jesus, that knew no sin, became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, meaning that he bore not his sin on the cross, but ours. And for that moment, it pleased God to crush his son, as the book of Isaiah says. Why? Because God loved us enough to say, I want to satisfy this sin because he's a holy God. He cannot just sweep sin under the rug. It will be paid for. He is a just God, and that divine justice must be seen. And so he crushed his son so it could be atoned for, and it pleased God to do it. But in this moment, Jesus is enduring it all, and he feels it. He feels it. Why does he do this? For his son's and his daughters. This is why. And so often this message is being given, it's being given, it's being given, and it's rejected, and it's rejected, and it's rejected. Why? Because the Bible says to those that are being saved, this message is glorious. It's glorious. Because they are aware of the sinfulness of their own sin. And it's a glorious truth because they know that they can be forgiven, man. They know that they can have life in Christ. But the Bible says to those who are not following Jesus, to those who are rejecting the Lord, I say this message is foolishness. Sounds like a bunch of silliness. This is crazy. This is silly, which are, would describe those that were rejecting Jesus on this day, would describe those that were poking fun of Jesus on that day. You know, our only response should be, as the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to that cross, I cling. The question that's natural for us now is, well, what does that mean for me? What does this mean for me, pastor? What does it mean for me? I see that there are some that are elect and some that are rejected. What does it mean for me? Well, here's what my Bible says. My Bible says that Jesus came to save sinners. If you're a sinner and the Lord has got your attention, he's opened your eyes and opened your ears, you're not here by mistake. I would say that describes you. If you are a sinner and you're looking for a savior and the Lord is speaking to you, I would say that this is for you. Why? Because Jesus came to save sinners. Well, what, what should we do about this? How do we respond? Well, I think the Bible is really clear here in verse 6 of chapter 11, what we talked about last week, that there's no works that can, can earn this. We can't go to church enough. We can't tithe enough. We can't do enough good things. There is no amount of work that can cause us to earn what Christ has done for us. As another old hymn says, uh, says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote this sacred head for sinners such as I? Make this personal for you. Was it for crimes that I've done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut in glory's end when God the mighty maker died for his own creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. I love this last verse. But drops of tears can near repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. In... A few months, prayerfully, we'll be in Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12 talks about us presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is holy and pleasing to God. This is what we're called to do, church. Present ourselves to God. Tis all that we can do. It's a debt of love. I owe. As we consider 
the reality of God's love and God's justice. I can't think of a better way for us to close our time together than to partake in what is known as communion or many know it as the Lord's Supper. So if you're here uh, this morning and you did not receive a packet and you would like to, if you'll just raise your hand high, we have ushers prepared in the balcony and down here to get you the communion packet that you need. So just raise your hand high. We'll make sure to get that to you. If you're willing, we just turn to the right of Romans 11. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to take just a moment to talk through this and then we'll partake in communion together. There's a few things I want us to know about the juice and the bread. Now, all you'll find in this packet is grape juice and uh, truthfully like a, an old stale cracker, unlike anything I've ever eaten in my life. Um, that's what you'll find in the contents of this package. But the point here is not the elements in and of themselves. You see, we don't hold to the doctrine that states that this literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. There's symbolism here for us, but the symbolism is great. It represents the body of Christ that was freely given, and it represents the blood of Jesus that was freely shed so that those who place their faith in him uh, may have life and hope and an eternal forever home secured in him. There's a few things we wanna remember this morning as we partake in communion, as we partake in the Lord's Supper. Here's one, we wanna remember the sufferings of Jesus. All that I'd spoken of as I quoted Psalm 22 and what we read in the New Testament, we wanna recall the sufferings of Jesus. We wanna, we wanna recall his death on a cross, but here, here's where it all comes together. We wanna recall that this was done for our sins. Wow. I love to think about the book of Colossians when it talks about the blood of Jesus covering us. So when God sees the believer who has placed their faith in Jesus, here's what he sees. He sees the believer covered in the precious blood of Christ. Why do we sing songs about the blood? That's why. I thought of this illustration in the last service. I'd read this a while back where a husband and wife were out hiking and there was this crazy hailstorm that came and that hailstorm was just pelting down, man. It was a bad one. And uh, the wife was just, just getting ate up and the husband couldn't stand it. So he just laid over her. He just laid over her until the storm passed. Well, after the storm was over and she looked at his back, it was bleeding and it was bruised from the hail that had pummeled his body. But his response is, it's my joy. And her response is, every time I see the scars, it makes me love you more. I can't help but think about Colossians, how God in his kindness sent his son Jesus that all who trust in him, place their faith in him, they are hidden with the precious blood of Jesus. Yes, for many, the blood can seem strange, seems a little gruesome, but it's just a reminder of all that God has done. So we wanna remember. Not only do we wanna remember, we wanna celebrate. How many of you today are grateful for the forgiveness of God and the grace of God in your life? Come on, somebody, isn't that good? Hey, listen, just, yeah, praise God for that, man. Just the other night, uh, just a confession, man, I was having a hard time sleeping, which is not unusual for me. Uh, I, I'll let you in on this secret. I've got a sleep study. It's my third one coming up, and it was scheduled many months ago, and it's scheduled February 11th at 6 o'clock. So about the time Super Bowl is starting, I'll be in a sleep study. That's awesome. I don't know who did that, but uh, anyway, I couldn't sleep the other night, and I was thinking about my past, 
Has the enemy ever brought your past up before you? Man, he does me sometimes. And I was thinking about my past, man. I was thinking about the type of person I used to be, decisions I've made that I know are not pleasing to the Lord. Uh, even as a believer, you know, things that I've done, I'm like, man, why did I do that? And I don't know if you're like me, but I can just really camp out there. And I felt like the enemy was just doing some work on me. But what he didn't know is God had a greater purpose because greater is he that is in me than he is in the world. And I was reminded that evening after some suffering over, you know, my mistakes, I was reminded of the grace of God in my life. Who am I, God, that you're mindful of me? God, you've blessed me. Amazing church family. You've blessed me with an amazing family. You've blessed me in so many ways. God, who am I that you would be so kind to me? Well, none of us deserve it. None of us. But God is full of grace, and it's all of grace. So I want you to celebrate this morning, or I suppose we're getting into the afternoon now. I want you to celebrate the forgiveness, the grace of God. Further, I, I want you to know that this is a time of fellowship with Christ and a time of fellowship with one another. As I mentioned earlier, we were once enemies of God's because of our sins, separated from God. But as Romans 5, 8 says, man, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God has brought us near. We're now sons. We're now daughters. We're friends of God. It's fellowship with Jesus in this moment. And we fellowship with one another. You want to know why? Because we're all in the same pool, man. There's not one person here that's like, oh, yeah, they've, they've earned it. They, they just got their life to get. No, man, we're all in the same boat. God in his kindness has compassionately forgiven us, offered us grace, given us new life, and we have fellowship with one another. People who maybe apart from Jesus wouldn't necessarily align or do life together the way that we do, but we are brought near as brothers and sisters because of Christ. I praise God for that. So we fellowship with one another. We fellowship with Christ. And lastly, we anticipate his return. Just last month, we celebrated the advent of Jesus, the first advent, Jesus being born in a little town called Bethlehem. And now we as believers, we anticipate the second advent. In a world that's broken and bruised and confused and all the things that are difficult around us, which will continue until Christ returns, man, we long and we anticipate for that day when Christ will come and make all things new. Now, regarding communion in and of itself, there's a couple of things. One, this is for the believer. If you're a follower of Christ, this is for you with one caveat. The Bible is really clear. If you have unrepentant sin in your life, something that's habitual, perpetual, something that you've not surrendered to Jesus, the Bible is really clear to just set this aside. It's not a form of punishment. It doesn't make you less than. It's just a form of acknowledgement and humility and saying, instead of partaking in communion where I celebrate the things uh, that were mentioned, the forgiveness, the grace, instead of that, I'm gonna do business with God and ask the Lord to forgive me. I'm gonna turn from my sin and I'm gonna walk out a lot lighter than I walked in. No shame in that. Don't worry about what anyone around you thinks, man. You just do business with the Lord. The second thing I would say is, if you're an unbeliever in this room, this is not for you, but man, we're glad you're here. And this is a great opportunity for you to eavesdrop and just watch the church as the church celebrates what Christ has accomplished. As we remember the body that was given, the blood that was shed on Calvary's cross for us. So as Jesus met with his disciples, 
uh, prior to going to the cross. He said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And that's exactly what we want to do. So I want to encourage you to prepare your packet by taking the first layer of film off and exposing the bread portion. I want to read the word to you from 1 Corinthians. It says this in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is, hear this, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. the word continues, he says, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In just a moment, we're going to sing a final song of worship and praise to our Lord. Let's give them all that we have today because, church, my prayer is that we walk out of here with a greater heart connection to what Christ has accomplished on the cross for us so that our sins could be atoned for. How great the ransom of Jesus. Father, we thank you for today. God, as we sing this last song, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you are glorified. I pray that you'll help us to sing with greater clarity than we walked in with. God, that we can just worship you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, for you're worthy of it all. And we pray this in the powerful name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen.